0: Find out what's on in our city on ORFM's Dunedin Community Notice Board. Go to oar.org.nz and look for the link. You're one click away from up-to-date community event listings and you can post your own notices free of charge.
1: This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about anxiety and particularly anxiety in young people. My guest today is Dr Emma Woodward, Clinical Director of the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience and a psychologist who works with schools and with children in education and in the community. Emma's focus is supporting people to develop the tools they need to be their best selves. She has a special interest in teaching children today the skills they will need tomorrow. Of this future-proofing work she does, she says, We can't provide certainty for our young people's futures, but we can teach them the skills of resilience and adaptability. So here to talk with us about resilience and about anxiety is Emma. Kira, Emma. We're delighted to have you with us. Welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life.
0: Hi, Denise. How are you doing? Good. And how are you? Yeah, not too bad. It's <laughs> a beautiful day and so happy as can be.
1: Excellent. So, Emma, first of all, tell us, when we, you know, we often talk about anxiety, but we're not always clear what we mean by that. What is anxiety and how would we recognize it in, in adults or in young people? So
0: anxiety itself is a typical evolutionary It serves a typical evolutionary purpose of keeping us alive. It's our survival response. It's our alarm system. And so what happens in clinical anxiety is that our alarm system becomes too sensitive and it triggers too often and it inhibits us doing the things we would normally expect to do in our everyday lives. So anxiety itself isn't the issue. It's when anxiety becomes overpowering and our alarm system feels like it needs to keep us safe from threats that might not necessarily be threatening.
1: Okay, so I love this idea that actually it's just, it's a really, really useful mechanism that we've maybe just got turned up too high.
0: And that's exactly it. So we are supposed to scan our environment for threat because that's how we recognise things that might do us harm. And in some people, the the alarm system or the threat that we perceive isn't it's, and our response to that is disproportionate, and that's when anxiety becomes an issue. So, for example, if we are responding to a normal typical everyday life event the way that we would be responding to a volcano or an earthquake then we know that there's some disparity between the response that we're feeling and the stimulus that's triggering that response
1: okay and how would this look you know when we see how would i know if someone in my life is suffering from anxiety how what would be the signs so anxiety looks
0: different for different people. And the three basic expressions of anxiety are fight, flight, freeze. And so some people may avoid situations or run away from situations. Other people may get angry. As smaller children, you might see tantrums to avoid a situation, to try and control the situation so they don't get made to do something they feel frightened about doing. And freeze would be where we find it difficult to make a decision. We kind of we get stuck and we kind of get a little bit panicky and can 't see the woods for the trees, so anxiety looks different for different people, but it all comes from the same basic neural mechanism, and that 's our emotional brain, our amygdala, firing uh, because it perceived some kind of threat, and it 's trying to make us avoid the behavior or the thing that it perceives to be threatening
1: so i'm, guessing, I'm I 'm I'm guessing that if there are lots of different ways that people can respond. You will know when they're anxious that... I guess that means there probably isn't one simple fix-all strategy. No, there's not one
0: simple fix-all strategy. There are some strategies that are evidence-based and we know work well with anxiety. For example, cognitive behaviour therapy, so understanding the link between our thoughts, feelings and behaviours, and mindfulness, so noticing which underlying part of our brain is driving our behaviour at any given time, are two very good ways to manage and deal with anxiety. Uh, There's lots of different strategies that we can break that down into, Um, proactive and reactive strategies. So a proactive strategy would be when you learn mechanisms to be able to keep yourself in your thinking brain, your prefrontal cortex is our thinking brain, and our uh, reactive strategies are what we would employ when we notice that our emotional brain, our amygdala, is beginning to take over, and they would be more breathing-type strategies.
1: Tell me a bit more now about the, um, the proactive strategies. So if I'm, if I'm worried that I'm going into a situation that's made me anxious before, what kind of things might I do proactively?
0: So proactive strategies are strategies that keep us well uh, generally so these would be making sure our, for example our prefrontal cortex our thinking brain is the brain that we need to be sitting in most to be able to be rational make good decisions and not be overpowered by our emotional brain and so the things that would be the baseline strategies the basic proactive strategies would be having enough sleep our prefrontal cortex doesn't work well when we're tired having our food having enough exercise all of those baseline well-being strategies other proactive strategies would be about positive self-talk and visualization and knowing that at any given time we have the resources and capabilities within us to manage most of the difficulties and challenges that we might face. So that's building ourselves up and teaching ourselves that we have the skills and the strategies and the resilience to cope in challenging situations.
1: Gosh, it, I'm, I'm thinking how how often when we get busy at work or we've got something scary that we have to do that we kind of load the deck against ourselves so I've got you know a big presentation that I'm worried about on Friday and um, the chances are I'll be really busy all week I'll um, not get enough sleep I probably won't eat properly um, I definitely won't have had any exercise so wow it just makes me realize that we could actually make our own lives a lot easier by paying attention to some of the proactive stuff as well.
0: Most definitely. And, I guess the important thing to think about is the way that the thinking brain and the emotional brain kind of interact. When our emotional brain is in control, we are less likely to remember to do the things that keep us proactively well. So the mantra that we talk about when we're working with children and young people is if you practice when it's easy, it's easy when it's hard. So these are things that you need to do consistently when you're feeling calm so they're easy to access when things start getting difficult. It's difficult to learn a new skill or try out a new strategy when we're losing control of our thinking brain because our emotional brain is taking over so these are things that we need to be doing low lie consistently throughout our day every day so they're easier to kind of grab onto and and increase and use more frequently when we notice things that begins to challenge us and trigger our anxious response
1: oh so say that again because i think where everyone is going to want to to remember that that mantra about do it when it's easy if you practice when it's easy it's easy when it's hard. it's about well-being and resilience, that you build it every day so that it's there for you when, when things get tough.
0: Totally, and it's about instilling new habits. is the first time you walk a shortcut through the bush, the, the leaves and the branches are quite dense, and the more you walk it, the clearer the path becomes. And so that's the same with instilling a new habit in your brain. The more you follow that neuronal pathway in your brain, the more likely you are to go there quickly the next time you do it. So if we slowly but surely make these positive habits and associations in our brain, they're easier to access when we're losing control of our thinking brain and our anxiety is taking
1: over. And it feels like that must, in itself, actually, is a really reassuring message for anyone who experiences anxiety, that that there is actually something that you can do in the comfort of your own home when you're not experiencing the stimulus of anxiety, that there is stuff you can do to help you feel better. And so we've talked about the sleep and exercise and nutrition. Tell us a little bit more about the self-talk. So
0: positive self-talk, we speak to ourselves three hundred to a thousand times a minute in our own
1: minds. Oh my god, I thought you were gonna say a day. No. Say that again. No, 300
0: to 1,000 words per minute in our own minds. So we need to make sure that the bulk of that message is positive because if it's not, we risk really putting ourselves on a back foot in the first instance because we're already sitting in a mental bug. So we need to be very conscious of the stories that we're telling ourselves about ourselves in our own minds and the tone of those stories and the words that we're using to describe our situations to ourselves.
1: We sometimes talk about tuning in to our internal radio. Yeah, totally. What messages are playing?
0: What stuff in the background is driving your thoughts and your behavior, the unconscious below the surface stuff? And if you can tune into that and you can listen to yourself, I know as a parent that I'm likely to lose my temper or become anxious and angry with my kids if I'm saying a lot of stop, don't know. And so if I can tune into myself and realize that a lot of the narrative is stop, don't know, or oh my goodness, it shouldn't be like that, then I'm going towards the path of becoming anxious and angry and entering into an interaction with my children that's not necessarily positive. So if we can be aware of that message before we get too far down that pathway, then we can recognize those words and try and do something to counteract those underlying messages that we're kind of priming our brain towards.
1: I love that. And it actually reminds me of... when I worked with Karen Ravich on resilience, she was, we would encourage people to tune into their internal radio so they could listen to the quality of their thoughts and conversation with themselves. Um, And she used to say, and what's playing on the radio? Is it, is it, you know, thrash metal or is it a little bit country? Totally. And it's, I think uh, there's
0: a lovely book by Dan Siegel called uh, The Whole Brain Child. And there's another one by the same author called No Drama Discipline. And he talks about shark music. So what's the underlying music that's playing that's driving your behavior? Is it shark music? And therefore, are you more likely to tip over into an anxious response? Because you're not giving yourself the best head start the more positive we are. It's very difficult for our emotional brain and our thinking brain to be both turned up at the same time at any given time one is in control and so you've got more chance of your thinking brain your prefrontal cortex being in control if we've got a positive story being told about ourselves by ourselves in our own heads if there's music
1: on the radio so I can be listening I can be kind of noticing the the quality of is it kind of happy dance music is it shark music or have I gone very country and my tractor is broken and somebody's died in the river and my dog's been run over <laughs> totally if we tune in to
0: uh, the story that we are telling ourselves about ourselves our narrative our radio that's going on in our head and if we notice that it's uh, A happy, positive one. Our next interaction with somebody is likely to be happy and positive if it's resentful and self-negating. Our next interaction with somebody else is likely to be a negative one. And it's by tuning into this baseline level of kind of story that's going on in our head that we give ourselves the best proactive chance to managing anxiety. Because the more positive we are, the more likely we are to be sitting in our thinking brain. The more shark music we're listening to tends to be emotional brain music. And that's where the anxiety comes from when our emotional
1: brain takes over. So if I've tuned into my radio and I've realized that it's, you know, Jaws 1, 2 and 3, and there's a lot of shark music in my world, um, what are some of the things that I can start to do? The first
0: thing you can do is congratulate yourself for
1: noticing it, because that's
0: a very difficult thing to do, especially when the music's very loud and you've taken a great step towards doing something different and realising you've got a choice rather than get carried away by that.
1: Oh, I like that. I love that the first step is to congratulate yourself.
0: Yeah, totally. You know, you've taken a big step if you've managed to do that, especially if it's not something that comes naturally to you, because it doesn't. It's something we need to practise at. And so once we've noticed that there's shark music playing, we've taken the first step towards doing something differently and not being overpowered by our emotions and going down emotion motion highway to willy-nilly and stopping ourselves and thinking, right, what do I need to do now to do something different? Is this positive and relative to the situation I'm in or do I need to be thinking, stopping and doing something different?
1: And so presumably then it's, it's back to... Um, I need to be challenging my own thinking and disputing it. And it's easier to do that in uh, shallow water rather than deep water. Totally. It is.
0: And I think also just having knowledge that our thoughts and our feelings and our behaviours are interlinked is quite powerful for some people too. Uh, People, when you get carried away by your anxiety which is, you know, it, it happens. And so it's supposed to be a very overpowering feeling because it's a survival response and it's supposed to be there to keep us alive. So it's supposed to completely take over our thinking processes to make us do what our emotional brain
1: wants us to do, which is avoid something that it believes is dangerous. What about when the, not to, apologies for the massive mixing of metaphors, but what about when the horse has already bolted? The so horse are already bolted and we're in deep water with a shore.
0: So when we're already kind of right up there and our physiological responses are completely out of control and our emotional brain is completely taken over, the biggest thing we can do then is arousal control. So calm ourselves down using our breath. And so that very much starts putting our emotional brain back in its box, calming it down, soothing it down and getting our thinking brain back online.
1: And how do we and, do that? Tell us a little bit about the, the calming breath. For those of us who've never done that. Well, the good thing about your breath is that you always have it and it doesn't cost anything and it's
0: always with you. So our breath is a really, really good way to help focus our attention on something other than our internal dialogue or the anxious messages that are going on in our head. There's a really beautiful strategy called box breathing and box breathing is a really nice way and it's a really good one to teach kids and adults alike. And box breathing works beautifully because inside of our brain there are these tiny little sensors. And if our emotional brain is unsure whether it needs to really kind of hit the big alarm bells, it checks out these sensors, and these sensors are monitoring our breathing. Now, if our breathing is calm and regular, then our emotional brain kind of goes up. False alarm and chills out a little bit. Whereas if our breathing is dysregulated, our emotional brain goes, see, told you, <laughs> la, 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 and kicks off even more. So if we can control our breath, we take a good chance of being able to, co- to re-control our emotional brain and turn off the alarm system when it's been triggered about something that it doesn't necessarily need to be triggered about. And a lovely way of doing that is something called box breathing. And so box breathing works on a number of levels because, firstly, it regulates our breath, which those little sensors then kind of go, oh, there's nothing to worry about, our breath is calm. And the other part of box breathing is that we count while we're doing it. And the good thing about counting is that we need to utilise our thinking brain to count. So if our thinking brain is working, then our emotional brain, it's very hard for them both to be on at the same time. So box breathing would be where you breathe in for four, hold your breath for four, breathe out for four, hold your breath for four. And you do that about eight times. And by the time you've done that, you've gone some way to regulating that high arousal state of kind of sheer panic. And it's a way of gaining control again. So you can start accessing your thinking brain and asking yourself, what other strategies can I now implement to regain control of my anxiety state it's called box breathing
1: because it's a four-size book, but some people call it four square breathing or box okay, breathing four square box I really like that i the visual of the square really works for me okay um, so Emma tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing to help people overcome their anxiety because I know I know in particular you've been doing a lot of work with um with students and using strength-based approaches can you tell us a little bit about that
0: so yeah, so I've been using a lot of strengths-based approaches because one of the proactive strategies that you can do to fight anxiety is to remind yourself that you have strength and resilience to these challenges that your emotional brain wants to trigger against. And so I've been incorporating strengths-based approaches, particularly character strengths, in the work that I've been with stud- been doing with students and young people as a baseline so they can remember within their toolkit they have 24 strengths from which they can choose or that are appropriate to meet the challenge that they face. So they're already starting from a place of competence. So when working with students around anxiety, we've been talking about four main areas and kind of combining them together so we've been talking about cognitive behavior therapy so specifically the links between thoughts feelings and behaviors and that each of them knock onto each other we've been looking at mindfulness or noticing so checking in with ourselves and noticing that radio music that's going on in our heads we've been talking about character strengths so which strengths do you tend to use most which tends which ones do you tend to forget that you've got which ones do you tend to overuse which ones do you tend to underuse And then we've been looking at um, brain education. So talking about very clearly what anxiety is, the evolutionary purpose of anxiety, and the neural substrates of anxiety. So specifically the interaction between the thinking brain and the emotional brain. And it works really well. If you can conceptualize anxiety to young people in a way that they can see, you can draw the brain, you can draw the prefrontal cortex, the thinking brain, you can draw the amygdala, the emotional brain, and you can you can draw on a diagram, what happens when one flips the other one, and then you can talk about the strategies that people have, the tools that they have, so their strength, for example, their bravery, their zest, their curiosity, which ones they can draw on to face the challenge they take. If they're thinking about that, then they're using their thinking brain. If you're using your thinking brain, your emotional brain's calming down. So our emotional brain, our amygdala, it thrives on certainty. So if we can have a plan about how we're going to approach the thing that makes us historically anxious, then our emotional brain doesn't trigger so loudly. So by using character strengths, we can think of a plan that we can instigate to face the thing that normally makes us anxious. Nice, nice work.
1: And if there was one thing that you really would you you would really like to um you, you really want parents and teachers to know about anxiety for themselves or for their their kids, what would that be?
0: It's a physiological response, and children can't stop themselves feeling anxious. So when you're seeing a child panic about something, it's not a case of them needing to man up or harden up or just get over it. It's a truly physiological response. It is their survival instinct telling them to avoid that situation at all costs. So. What we can do is teach them, if we know that a child has a tendency towards anxiety, we can teach them about anxiety when they're in a calm state, when they're accessing their thinking brain, and they can do the laying around it, what anxiety is and how we can manage it, and then we can help them use those skills and strategies in the face of the things that make them feel anxious. But the key is to teach them the skills before they're anxious. When a child's already in a panic state, the only thing that you can do in this lovely work by Bruce Perry is regulate them help them come back down to a space where they can access their thinking brain and then do the talking afterwards. But there's no point trying to push a child through an anxious response because they're going to fight you for their life because that's the situation they're in. It is to them an earthquake, a volcano, a house fire. That's how important it is to them at that moment.
1: And so in that moment when you say you talk about Bruce Perry's work and helping them regulate, is that about making them feel safe, comforting them? Yep, being there with them, low-key, calm
0: words, it's okay, I'm next to you, being their thinking brain. They're the emotional brain. Your job is to be their thinking brain. And because of those sneaky mirror neurons, we do have a tendency to get panicked by other people's panic. So we need to be very aware that when we are with someone who's panicking, to be more conscious of accessing our thinking brain, because that's what they
1: need. So stay calm for them. Yes. Okay. Okay. So if I'm a teacher or a parent and there's a child with me who's really panicky, stay calm myself, provide comfort and reassurance, and then when they've calmed down, then I can think about helping them with a plan and getting them to do some thinking brain work
0: totally some strategies they can employ next time their alarm system fires and the big thing is is especially for teachers a lot of teachers that I talk to and for parents just don't feel helpless in the light in light of another of a child's panic there's nothing you can do to you know you haven't done anything wrong it's not anything about your level of competence about have, being able to support this child it's their brain and so keep that in check and be there as much as you can for them.
1: Brilliant. I think I know loads of um, adults without kids and parents and teachers will find these strategies really helpful. Thanks, Emma. So now two questions before we finish. If you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being, what would it be? See, I want to say something really
0: cool about surfing every morning or snowboarding at least four (laughs) times a year. But it's probably mindfulness because if you can notice, you can control and you can check in with yourself and then you can make a choice about how to respond rather than to react. So I'd say mindfulness.
1: What's your go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being when you get frustrated or down?
0: Hanging out with my friends. Connection. Getting that sense of belonging, being surrounded by people who accept me, tolerate me and love me for who I am and can buoy buoy me back up, boost me back up. So, yeah, it's about connection and it's about being with my friends.
1: Lovely. Thank you for that. Emma, it's been a delight to talk to you today. Thank you so much for being with us. No, you're more than welcome. Thank you very much, Denise. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling calmer and more in control now, thanks to Emma's view of how we can proactively deal with anxiety. Emma reminds us that we can do a lot before the situation. Making plans and preparing helps. And it's important to tune in to our internal radios and notice what music is playing. If it's shark music, it's time to put the plan into action. But in the moment, if we're feeling panicky and anxious, the best thing to do is to breathe and calm ourselves. And if you're with someone who's panicking, comfort and calm them down. Talk afterwards. There is no point in giving someone strategies until you've helped them calm down. And Emma's go-to strategy for cheering herself up is to hang out with friends. I think it's lovely to be reminded of how important that is in our lives. This week, who can you catch up with who will make you smile? You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to listen to a podcast of this show, you can find it on or.org.nz or at nziwr.co.nz. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening. This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. For more information on how schools, communities and workplaces can grow their well-being and resilience, go to nziwr.co.nz.
0: Find out what's on in our city on ORFM's Dunedin Community Notice Board. Go to oar.org.nz and look for the link. You're one click away from up-to-date community event listings and you can post your own notices free of charge.
1: This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air.